Romans 8, verse 14, is where we're going to be. And we'll read through verse 23 this morning as we continue our work through the Apostles' Creed, this great creedal statement of the church, the early church, that much of the church in its history and even now holds to and affirms. And we come this morning to the statement, God the Father. I believe in God the Father. And so let's read of our great God from Romans 8, verses 14 through 23. Hear God's word. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God and of children then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. For I consider the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. For the creation awaits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption. And obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we await eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. And since the reading of God's word, may the grass wither and the flower fade, but the word of our God, may it stand forever. Let's pray. God, we call you Father. Now come convince us by your Spirit that you are indeed our Father and that we are your children. Encourage us and strengthen us with this reality, this life-changing, life-transforming reality that we are yours. So in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. It's incredible, isn't it? The Christian name for God is what? Father. Father. No other religion talks about God in this way. It's the first thing we see God talks to us about himself is that he is father. That means he is not some distant deity who has created the world and wound it up and left us. No, he is a person. He is a relational God. He is not uninterested in us, in our lives, and he is not simply some abstract power into which we will drop like a drop of water into the ocean of this deity one day. He is a person. He is a person who is unlike us, while at the same time, because we are made in his image, we are like him. That's crazy. He is Father. I'm going to talk to you this morning about four, kind of four, in your outline, four points this morning about what it means for God to be our Father, kind of some to help you there as we walk through this text and through this idea of God as Father. First thing is this, and we must understand about what it means for God to be our Father, is that ultimately or initially and, and most pointedly, when it refers to God as Father, it is talking about His eternal relationship with God the Son. You see, I've talked about this a couple of weeks ago, that the Creed is a Trinitarian document. Its outline is formed around the three persons of the Trinity, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Spirit. And what we see in the scriptures is that God the Father and God the Son, 
There's a filial relationship in theological terms. There's a father-son relationship amongst the Trinity. Is unique from all other relationships. Jesus is unique in his sonship, even from us. It is eternal and intrinsic to who he is. He has eternally been God's son, God the Father's son, and he has eternally been God along with God the Father. It is not a status that God created him and then conferred upon him. It is a status that God the Son has had for all of eternity. He has always possessed this place as son and God the Father as the Father. In of himself, Jesus is the Son of God, and in of himself, God the Father is God the Father. Hebrews 1, verses 2 and 3, the very beginning of this great book, talks about this. It says this in describing Jesus. In the last days, God, who has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. And then talking about Jesus, he says this. He is the irradiance of the glory of God in the exact imprint of his nature. You want to know God the Father? Jesus says you've got to know God the Son. There is a relationship there that is unique. There is no one else that is quite like God the Son in his relationship with God the Father. And saying God the Father, the creed is state in, brief, in a brief and beautiful way, in as few words as possible, the precise character of God as it's described and given to us through Jesus Christ. This is the way Jesus viewed God. He addressed him as Father. And God the Father addressed Jesus as Son. God the Son says, my Father, when he prays. He says, Abba, when he prays in the garden. He comes to do the will of the Father. That's the relationship they have going on there. In the same way, God the Father also cares for God the Son. All the things that God the Father has given for the Son to do is so that the Son may be lifted up and glorified in the end. And we see, we see the Father's mark of love, an incredible love and pronouncement on the Son at Jesus' baptism. What does he say? Mark 3, picking up in verse 16, it says this, And when Jesus was baptized, immediately he went up from the water and beheld the heavens were open to him. And he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and coming to rest on him. And behold, a voice from heaven said, This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. God as a Father. That first refers to who he is within the Trinity. And it tells us who Jesus is as well. He is God the Son. All right, so that's deep theological lesson early on, right out of the gate this morning. Let's go to point number two. You will come back to why that's important, though. Point two, God as Father means that we need Him. We need a Father. All the stats show us that we need a Father. And not just any Father, we need a good Father, a worthy Father. David Brooks of the New York Times um, talks about this in, in one particular editorial in which he refers to a study that was done in 1938 and followed men born in 1938 all the way to their death. 30,000 different men. Then they studied these men for their whole lives. All the way through, they noticed that those who became leaders and who seemed to flourish, and they discovered that those who, the main factor in, in making them become leaders and making them flourish in life was this. The closeness and the health of their relationship with their parents. Having a good father matters. We desperately need a good father in our lives. When you have one, it changes everything. It shapes everything about your life for the good. If you don't have one, it's complete opposite. If you don't have a good father or no father at all in your life, it radically shapes your life, often for the worse. And isn't this the scourge of our society, isn't it? Every stat is showing that our culture and our society is cracking everywhere for this reason, because we don't have fathers. And because we don't have fathers, mothers don't get to play the role that they're supposed to play either. 
We have lost our parents in this world. This happens not simply out in the world. It happens in our churches all the time as well. Let me tell you about a story about one pastor. He grew up in a, in his, in, in, in a pastor's home. He was the son of a pastor. He was a PK. And his father was warm and outgoing at church. The kind of man who could walk around church and glad and everyone all day, all day long, care for everyone else except for at his own home. At his own home, he was cold and indifferent toward his children. He also, always seemed to communicate disappointment towards his son. And this pastor, this young man as he grew up, he became a pastor. He realized early on that the way to try to get his, even some semblance of satisfaction was his father was to know the Bible answers and to go to Sunday school and to be the kid who knew everything and to get some sense of acceptance there in the church where because he was the PK, everyone expected him to know the answers. And so he did. He learned all the answers. And so he grew up and he found acceptance more and more and more there. So he went into ministry. This is how often men get into ministry. It's a place where we find acceptance. And so really ministry is our God. And what happened to this man is the pressure, though, as he grew up, began to crush him. This father gap in his life he began to try to fill with so many other things. He began cutting himself. He was addicted to pornography, to drugs, to alcohol. And he was eventually discovered by his church. So in the midst of counseling, he goes to a counselor and you're talking to him about these issues that's going on in his life. He says he remembers those days when he was a child and he would try to engage with his father. He remembers the disappointment of his father. This pastor who loved everybody else but seemed constantly disappointed with him. And this young man remembers how he didn't love football like his dad loved football. But he would try to connect with his father. So he remembers on Sunday afternoon, one Sunday afternoon in particular, where he, would curl, he curled up next to him and tried to watch football. And his dad knew that he didn't like football. And so he turned to him and said, only sissies don't like football. That's not a worthy father. And it crushed him. He went into ministry. He seemed to be okay on the outside, but he was crumbling on the inside. Heard one particular counselor talk about this. She's a woman, the counselor from Colorado, and she was giving a talk, and she, her talk was titled this, Girls Have Gone Wild, in which she talked about the aggressiveness of females now in our society, that they're far more aggressive in the way they pursue. They've become stalkers and aggressors. Women, more than any other time in our history, have struggled with pornography and sexual addictions. And it's, she said, the reason is this. It's called father hunger. Because we don't have fathers, these women have cried out, trying to get attention of men any way they possibly can. We make fun of this in our TV shows, don't we? We call it daddy issues. This is the problem. In our nation, in our churches, and our culture, it's fatherless, and it's killing us. So we need a good father. And God is a father. Here's the bad news. This is the apex of the bad news for us. The horrible, awful news is that even though God describes himself as father, he is not naturally your father. Now, I have to say that, and I have to make that plain and, plain and clear because the average person today in the church and really, I think, across our society would say that we are all children of God. And there is a sense in which that is true, but there is a sense in which that is not true. And primarily, it's not true. Let me talk about the three things that a, that a parent gives you, a father gives you in particular. Three things. They give you existence, first and foremost. Second, they give you resemblance. And third, they give you relationship. Now, in the first sense, 
We are all children of God, right? Because God is the one who has created all things. He has given us existence. And so, yes, in that most broad, generic sense, we are all children of God's. What about resemblance, though? What we see in Hebrews is while we are the image of God, there is only one who is the exact imprint of God, and that is Jesus. So, so far, so far in those first two things, it is either everyone is God's child, and he is the father of everyone, or he is only the father of God the Son, Jesus. What about the third? Well, the third is the relational aspect, and that is the aspect that it seems God seems to care about and communicate most about in both the Old and the New Testaments. That this is a relationship. A parent doesn't just simply give you existence and a resemblance, but they are also the one who create a, a safe environment, a safe relationship in which you grow. They give you guidance and care. They're the ones who accept you so that you grow up internally and emotionally. It is that relationship that shapes you. That is the relationship that is most crumbled in our world because we have fathers who give children existence and give them resemblance, but they don't give them relationship, and that's why we're crumbling. And that is the truth for all of human history, that we have lost the father. It is in this sense, in this most important sense, that we have lost a relationship with God the Father. He is not our father in this way. We don't have a relationship with him. And it's not like today where the father abandons the children. Instead, what we see in the story of Scripture is that the children have abandoned the father. This is the story all the way in Genesis 3. All the way back when man fell, what we did is we rejected God. We separated ourselves from him. And ever since then, things have gone to hell in a handbasket because we have separated ourselves from our father. Therefore, we don't know who we are. We very little resemble him anymore. We were made as image bearers, but now as image bearers, we are broken. We don't resemble him the way that we were meant to. We don't have the relationship. We are not told who we are, how we have security, how we have significance, how we have acceptance, and therefore we don't grow up. We've rejected him. In fact, we haven't just rejected him. It's not just that we're not the children of God. Who does Jesus, when he's talking to the Pharisees, say we are? He says they are children of the devil. This doesn't get much worse news, does it? This is bad. This means this. means this. It doesn't matter if you had a physical father who was in your life. It doesn't matter if you came from the most broken, absolutely worst home in the world, or if you grew up in a Norman Rockwell painting. It means that you are separated from the father who truly is the one who shapes you. And therefore, you have a father hunger deep down in your soul that only this father can meet. And this, this separation from God the Father has affected everything. It affects the way we view work. It affects the way we view relationships. It affects the way we view marriage. It affects the way we parent. It all is affected by this issue. We're the most medicated society in all of human history. You know why? Because not only have we lost our physical fathers, but we, have no, no, we are completely separated from our spiritual father. We are living as children who are undergoing separation anxiety perpetually. And we have to medicate ourselves in order to get through it. So, that's the bad news. We need a father. We need a good father. And we need God as our father, mostly. So how do we get him back? How do we become children of God? How does he become our father again? One word. One word. Adoption. Adoption is the word. Third point. God is father. Doesn't just mean he's God the son's father. Doesn't mean... We need just mean him. We need him, but we also, because we have separated ourselves from him, God the Father also needs to pursue us and initiate with us. Did you initiate with your father? I don't think so. I think he initiated with you first, and he pursues you. God, this is the beautiful story of Scripture. 
The story of adoption in the scriptures is this, is that God wants sons and daughters, and he is building for himself a home, and he wants to fill it with children. That is the heart of our God. And this is the heart what is what behind the gospel and the incarnation of Jesus Christ. Galatians 4.4 4 says this, When the fullness of time had, had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. Here's the kicker. So that we might receive the adoption of sons. Ephesians 1.3, don't let this make your mind explode. He said this, Ephesians 1.3, Paul says this, He chose us in him before the foundation of the world. In love, he predestined us for the adoption through Jesus Christ. Now, it doesn't matter what you understand by that word predestined. What does matter is he has ordained all things to do what? To make you sons and daughters. That's the good news of the gospel. And this passage from Ephesians 1, verse 3, tells us a couple things right off the bat. It tells us, right, the, the points that I've just given you. It tells us that first that God's love is not reactive, but his love is initiating. His love is not reactive, but it's an initiating love. We didn't go after him. He went after us. And second also tells us that God loves us, not for anything in us. Not for anything in us, as it will go on and tell us in Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, but because of what is in him. In love, he predestined us. In love, he pursued us. Not because we were worthwhile, but because he placed upon us worth. This is, an interesting, this is an interesting dynamic theologically, right? We're totally depraved. We're completely, in so many ways, we should be worthless. And yet God the Father has placed worth upon us. We have to hold those things in detention. So you are worthy. You are, there's something value about you. That's what he is saying here. So he's pursued us. Our adoption as sons and daughters of God comes entirely by his work. Every bit of it from beginning to to end is done by him. He initiates it. He pursues. He saves. He adopts. He does all the legal paperwork. He pays the price. In eight days, my wife and I are going to walk into a courtroom right off the square here in Carrollton, and we're going to sign papers, and we're going to take a five-month little baby boy with us, and he's going to become our son legally. Now, here's the wonderful thing. It's a picture of the gospel. He's not going to do a cotton-picking thing. He's not going to get up and dress himself. He's not going to drive himself there. He doesn't have to sign a document. We have done all the work for him. We have paid the adoption fees. We have gotten the lawyers. We're going to drive him there. This is what God has done for you. You haven't done anything. And to say anything any other way is to break something in the gospel. To say that we have done something is to break some aspect of the gospel. It's to break this picture. It is a beautiful thing. In, these, in this idea that God has pursued us and he is one who initiate us, initiates with us, we see the, the, the love of God the Father. We see him coming after us time and time again. You ever read, I, I got kids, so I read these type of things, but you may have forgotten it from when you read it from your kids. But the runaway bunny, it's been around since the 1940s. And here's how the runaway bunny goes. Describes God's pursuit of us. Once there was a little bunny who wanted to run away. So he said to his mother, I'm running away. If you run away, said his mother, I will run after you, for you are my little bunny. If you run after me, said the little bunny, I will become a fish in a trout stream, and I will swim away, swim away from you. And mama says, if you become a fish in a trout stream, said his mother, if I, I will become a fisherman, and I will fish for you. I will become, if you become a fisherman, said the little bunny, I will become a rock on the mountain high above you. 
And if you become a rock on the mountain high above me, said his mother, I will become a mountain climber and I will climb to where you are. And if you become a mountain climber, said the little bunny, I will be a bird and fly away from you. And if you become a bird and fly away from me, said his mother, I will be a tree that you can come home to. And if you become a tree, said the little bunny, I will become a little sailboat and I will sail away from you. And if you become a sailboat to sail away from me, said his mother, I will become the wind and blow you where I want you to go. This is a picture of God's pursuit of us. Psalm 139 talks about it. Where shall I go away from the Lord? You can get nowhere. Because the fatherly love of God comes after his children, those who he has created, who resemble, who are his image bearers, and now he wants a relationship with them to be restored. But how do we know he's come after us? How do we know he loves us? How do you know? That is the question that is within the deep, deepest reaches of our soul, is that question. Does my father love me? There's a man named Steve Gleason who was a, um, a football, professional football player in the NFL with the New Orleans Saints. And while he was there, he was diagnosed with ALS, with Lou Gehrig's disease. So I had to retire from his career. But because he had been in the NFL, he has opportunities. And he's now a man, he's, he's like Stephen Hawking. He speaks through a computer and sits in a wheelchair. But he, he gets to do interviews with fairly famous people for a magazine. So one of the interviews he did was with Eddie Vedder, who is the lead singer for Pearl Jam. Now, if you've ever seen Eddie Vedder, he's a one bad, cool dude. I mean, you listen to him talk, and you're like, I want to talk like that guy. I mean, he's got this kind of the voice of God type, type thing going on. He is a big, thick, burly guy. So he's sitting there. So Steve Gleason's in this wheelchair talking through this computer, and he's interviewing Eddie Vedder. And one of the things that Steve Gleason would communicate to Eddie Vedder was that as he is approaching his death, he's, he's embarking on a project where he is recording himself saying and giving advice and wisdom to his son. Because he, he won't be there very long for his son. So he asked Eddie Vedder, he said, Eddie, I know that you and your father weren't close. In fact, you barely ever knew your father. In fact, Eddie Vedder has a number of songs, if you know Pearl Jam, about the separation he has from his father. And he said, what would you have liked to have heard from your father? What would you like to have known from him? And Eddie Vedder, this bad dude, begins to cry on this video. And in the midst of this interview, he says, deep down, I think what I just want to know is simply, did he love me and how much? Did you love me and how much? Well, that's what the Bible has come to answer. And that's what the gospel has come to communicate. It doesn't leave us hanging when we ask that question, does it? How do we know God loves us? Romans 5, 8. But God shows his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The cross is the picture of the lengths to which God the Father will go and God the Son will go in order to make us sons and daughters. That's what's going on at the cross. On the cross, when Jesus cries out to God the Father, does he get an answer? No. He gets no answer. Why? So that when we ask the question, does my Father love me? We can know the answer is yes. He was abandoned so that we may be brought in The beloved Son of God was rejected so that we might be accepted. This is the gospel. This is the apex of what we need to understand. How God, the apex of all he has done to pursue us. He entered into death to bring you back. To make you sons and daughters. Jesus communicates and embodies the Father's love for us. Look to the lengths and breadth and depth to which God the Father will go to make you his. I heard a story recently about a family that was seeking to adopt from Congo. If you know anything about the adoption world, Congo is not where you want to adopt. They aren't good at it. We'll say that. 
They went through all the process to work through the paperwork and all the various issues that go along with that, raised all the money, paid all the fees, and the family went over there and a couple of those, I think two Novembers ago, to get their little boy. And they got there and Congress said, now, well, now listen, we have another, some other steps you've got to jump through. So for six weeks, they left their job and they kept going after hurdle, after hurdle, after hurdle that the government kept putting up in front of them, more money, more costs that they had to go through. Six weeks. Could you live six weeks without an income? Six weeks, they left their two other children in order to go get this little boy. They eventually went home in December, or actually after December, they missed Christmas. They went home in early January without their child. But the mother said, I will not leave my son over there. And so she went back in February. And for six months, she stayed in Congo and went door to door, did everything possibly she had to do so that she could bring her little boy home. What cost? What would you pay? What would you pay for a child? Who would pay such a cost to bring a child home? The cross says God would. He came to get you. That's the truth of the gospel. That's good news right there. That's not the end of the story though, right? He doesn't just make us become our father and then just go, okay, cool. You go play. He does something else, doesn't he? We have to get to more of what's going on. He, once he's our father, what then happens? What does he do? He gives you himself. He brought you into his, into his family to have a relationship with you. So it's not, well, okay, Daddy, God the Father is going to go into his office now. And I'm going to study theology. Oh, he doesn't need to do that. He's going to go hang out with you. What does he give us? What do we see in Romans 8? We see the Spirit of God talked about over and over and over again in Romans 8. Why? Because God has given us himself. He resides in us. Romans 8 says this. Look at what we're picking up in verse 14. For we, for all who are led by the Spirit of God, are sons of God. For you do not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are indeed children of God. When you come into God's household, when you get the Father, he gives you himself. And God sends his spirit into our hearts so that we can, ex- we can know that we have a good father and we experience the joy and the laughter of being a part of his family. The spirit came into the world. God the son came into the world to bring, to win us as siblings. And the spirit of God came into the world, into our hearts to convince us that it's true. So that we can live in a relationship with God the father. You see when God the father, he sends the spirit to reside in you. And the spirit communicates and provides us deep blessings in communicating truths to us. Deep blessings that we see that we have. They communicated all that we have in our adoption story. I, once heard, I heard an adoption story recently. So from way, way long ago, when adoptions were done a little bit differently, they were a little bit more cold. But the Spirit is a sign. And here's what happened in this adoption story. This man, this man and woman went and picked up a little boy from an, from an orphanage. And the woman was convinced that it was time for them to adopt. And she was convinced that this was the child for them, and the father was not so convinced. And so the sign that he had for the mother was that he would accept this child, was that he had made a sailboat for the possible child that they were going to adopt. So the child remembers is as they, after they left the orphanage, they went to a restaurant, and he said one of the sweetest moments of his life was hearing from his mom as she hearkened back to that day, is that during that restaurant, during that time at that meal, the father reached into a bag and pulled out a sailboat and gave it to the son. It was the sign. It was the sign that said, this is my child and I accept him and he is mine. 
You know, the sign that you, know, you know that you're God's child is if you have the Spirit of God and if you have the blessings that the Spirit gives to you. And what are those blessings? I'm going to give you three this morning that we see in Romans 8. Three blessings. God as Father means His children re- receive blessings, and there's three of them. The first is this. We get full status as sons and daughters. Not partial status, not lesser status. And here I'm talking about in comparison to Jesus. Romans 8 says we are heirs. In Romans 8, Paul is making a comparison here. He's saying that we are not slaves, but we are sons. We are heirs. Slaves, in those times, if you, sometimes being a slave was a gracious thing. People would bring you into their household, and they would provide for you, and you would provide services for the family. So your basic needs would be provided for, but you were not an heir. You didn't have the, the blessings of being an heir. What we see in Romans 8 is we are not slaves. We haven't just simply brought into the household and then given chores to do. But we have been given an inheritance as children, as full sons and daughters. We started this morning, at the first point was that there was a way in which Jesus, the Son of God, is unique in his sonship with God the Father. The second person of the Trinity. But what we've seen in the gospel is that God the Son has come and he has connected us to him. And then brought us back into the relationship with God the Father. Now here's the truly earth-shattering truth of the gospel and what Jesus has done for us. When God brings us in, when Jesus ushers us back into relationship with God the Father, when he brings us in as adopted sons and daughters, we don't have some sort of secondary status as God's kids. We have the same status as Jesus. The same status. This means the emotions that God the Father feels for God the Son, he now has those emotions for you. The same affections that he has for the second person of the Trinity, he has for you. The gospel tells us that God the Father loves us like he loves Jesus. Do you believe that? That is, that is unbelievable. He loves us like his perfect son, who has dwelt with him for all of eternity. When the Father looks at us, he loves us. Some of you, we should, you, just, you need to stop right there and you need to just go home and think about that because you don't believe it. You don't live in light of it. You live in light, you live like you're a slave. But this totally makes sense, right? For the adopted sons and daughters to be in equal status with the, the biological son. When you adopt a child, you don't come in and people come over to you and you go, oh, here's our adopted child. Yeah, we like him a little bit. Oh, but here's our biological children. We really love them. We, what would we say if we saw that? That's despicable and awful, and it breaks the very heart of what adoption is. No, that's exactly what it has happened when God the Son has brought us back into the family. God now looks at us and says, oh man, my affections are the same for you. That means this, you can reread your Bible, and whenever you see God the Father talking about God the Son, you say, he's talking about me that way. I read at the very beginning what God the Father said about God the Son at his baptism. What does he say? What does he say? You are my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. You believe that? Because that's what the Father says over you. See, so many of you live your life going, I'm a Christian. Yeah, I'm a child of God. But he isn't pleased with me. That's a lie. It's a lie from the pit of hell, hell and it smells like smoke. Because God the Father says, You are my beloved and in you I am well pleased. All right, so he's given us full status as sons and daughters, but he's also given us this, secure assurance. Romans 8 again. You received not a spirit of fear, 
But the spirit of adoption is sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father, the spirit bearing witness that we are children of God. The spirit bears witness to our spirit. That's what's being said there. Now, this is a reference. This is an interesting reference that Paul is giving us to here. It's a reference to a court system, to probate courts, where the rightful heir is determined who's going to get all the inheritance. And in, order, in probate court back then, you would have had two witnesses to determine who the father had said he's going to give all his money to. So what do we see going on in Romans 8? We see two witnesses. Your spirit. But who's the kicker? Who's the kicker witness in the court of law? The spirit of God shows up and says, you are God's son. You have full status. That means no one can take it away. Case closed. Shut the briefcases. Let's all go home. He is indeed a child of God. And when the spirit of God speaks, what does that give you? It gives you assurance. You see, the devil would like to say to you, you are not God's child. You're some, some ugly redheaded stepchild. That's, that's what the devil would like to say to you. Sorry for all of you who have red hairs. It's just, you know, I have red hair all over the place. My beard is completely red. <laughs> Digging myself out of a hole. All right. Uh, but he comes and he communicates to us assurance. It is the very spirit of God tells you that you're God's child. It's not just me. It's not just your parents. It is the Spirit of God who comes and tells you that you have a perfect standing before the Lord. And that's what means this. It means your relationship with God is perfectly secure. It means this. There is nothing you can, you can do or have not done that makes Him love you any more or any less. Some of you don't live on that standard. You live as if God's love for you is a sliding scale based on your performance. Children, though, we need to be secure. The most secure children in the world are the ones who are most successful. We need constant assurance of the truth of who we are. That we can't ever lose our standing. That we can't ever lose him as our father. And this is something we, nest, we desperately need to hear, isn't it? You know, children, in particular those who have, who have lived without children and without affection for many years, one of the great problems is people bring them home is that one, one of the things that they find is those children hoard food. They hide food. Why is that? They don't trust that the parents are going to provide them the next meal. We don't have to live like that. To live trusting that God is going to provide for us. He's provided for us entirely. Therefore, there are no fears that God is going to fail us. We don't have to live in a performance-based system thinking that today he's going to accept me, but tomorrow if I do this, he's not going to. We have a hard time believing that, don't we? That's why God gave us the Lord's Supper. Did you know that? What does the Lord's Supper tell us? It tells us, it says, Hey, child, oh, did you sin this week? Did you, was your performance terrible this week? Come to the table. I'm your father. Come to the table. God wants us to experience the assurance and the security of our adoption. And this is what casts out fear. It doesn't just cast out fear in our relationship with Kim. It casts out fear in everything, right? It gives you confidence to live life. Fear not. The father cares for you. He's going to provide for you. So we, we can go with God with our greatest questions. Again, many of you think that you're children of God. You'll, you'll, you'll acknowledge that intellectually. But here's the question that you may have inside of your head. Is God ever going to grow tired of me and my sins? And the Spirit of God comes to you and it testifies as the witness and says, No, you are his son. And we ask the question, is he ever going to give up on me? And the Spirit of God shows up and says, testifies and see your hearts and says, No, you are his son, you are his daughter. And we ask questions like, is he ever going to stop providing for me? And he says, No. No. And the Spirit points us back to the cross and says, look at how he's provided for you already. Will he not give you ever all things? Third and finally, we get secure assurance. We get full status. We also get intimacy with the Father. Remember hearing a man 
tells the story. It was really cute. Every time uh, his, little, his little girl would see he and his wife hugging, she would stop whatever she was doing and she would freak out and she'd go running to her parents and she would jump into the middle of the hug and she would say, family hug, family hug, family hug. That's a really sweet picture. It's a true picture of what God the Father has done for us and God the Son has done for us. See, if you understand the Trinitarian dynamic is for all of eternity, the Trinity has been loving one another intimately. God the Father to God the Son, and God the Son to God the Father, and God the Son to God the Father to God the Spirit. And what has happened in the gospel is that clinging to Jesus, we are brought into the middle of the family hug. And therefore, we get intimacy. As a practice of our intimacy, what do we get to do? The main practice that we constantly see in Galatians and Romans and see the example of Jesus is we get to do what as a practice of our intimacy? We get to call God Dad. This disturbs some of you that we can call him Daddy. But this is how Jesus taught us to pray, isn't it? The Lord's Prayer, how does it start? Our Father. Our Father. And what we see in both the Galatians 4 and Romans 8 today is when Paul's talking about this, what does he say? The Spirit comes and cries within us so that we can cry out to God, Abba, Father. What? He's speaking to Romans. They don't know Aramaic. Abba is an Aramaic word. Why would he use the term Abba? Because that's the term that Jesus used. He used it in the garden. He used it on... There. In that day, he came to the Father. He fell on his knees. He said, Abba, take this cup from me. This word literally means Papa or Daddy. And it's not a word that has lost reverence, but it's the word that it would be the first, an Aramaic, a child who speaks Aramaic, whose family speaks Aramaic, it would be the first word that they learn. Because it's easy to say, my son is learning to say Dada this week. Yeah. Me. This is what a child learned to say. Abba, 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 Abba. This is what we get to say, God the Father. The calling us to prayer shapes the way we view prayer, isn't it? Prayer is you coming to Abba, Father, like a little child in worship and affection when you're crying. It's for every season of life, this word Abba. The intimacy of God who walks with us. Use this word Abba everywhere. Let's see if I can describe it this way. Romans 8, as it goes on, the last section I'm not going to really deal with this morning, but it talks about the fact that we have present sufferings. And at the very end, it also mentions the fact that we will receive our adoption as sons fully and completely at the end of all things. Therefore, here's the sense. We are both adopted now, and we will wait for a fuller experience of our adoption one day. Because right now, we still experience sufferings. And a good father will eventually eliminate all sufferings from our life. But as we walk through this life, we get to experience the intimacy of God even in the midst of those things. Let me see if I can describe it this way. From an illustration I read from the book Adopted for Life by Russell Moore. He tells a story about being at dinner one night, and he was listening to an old priest share this story, share this account, this description. This old priest, this pastor, was speaking of an ancient Jewish patterns of prayer and how different they are from our contemporary patterns or forms of prayer. He said, our Jewish and early Christian fathers, he said, would rarely have prayed silently with their heads bowed. But instead, they would pray, pray noisily. And how they pray? With their arms outstretched to the heavens. And we know this from the Old Testament scriptures as well from early Christian catacomb art. That this is how they would, they would have art in early Christian paintings of Christians doing this. This is how they would pray. This old pastor would point out, and this is what made Russell Moore's hair stand on his head, he said, was the old man's characterization of this physical stance. And he said this, 
The man stood up from the dinner table and outstretched his arm and asked, Does this not look like a toddler? In virtually every human culture, no matter where place in the earth they, they belong, crying out to his parents for food or for attention, they stick their arms out. He continued, And is it not also cruciform? How is it that our Lord Jesus would have cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Was it not with his arms outstretched to the heavens as a child to his father? What is he saying there? It means we use Abba for our most intimate, deepest, joyous seasons of affection and praise. When my kids, when I walk in the door, here's how my kids run to me, arms out, ready for a hug. That's what a toddler does. When a child cries, in the midst of this, their anguish, what do they naturally do when they've been hurt badly? They get up. And like they're walking with their eyes closed. You can, you can see this, right? And they're running. Gosh knows, you know, you're, they're going to run into a wall. But they're running to you like this. It's both affection and it's cruciform. We can call upon God and he will come running to us. The hug of the Father's embrace and intimately come near us as we come to him like this. This is the Abba stance. Maybe you should pray like that. We can come to God with our greatest gladness and our greatest anguish. Well, my question this morning is, is your life based on God as your father? See, everything changes if you understand this. Everything changes. Do you live your life resting upon this truth? Is this the deepest trust of your heart? John 1.12 says this, and tells us to this. It says this, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, talking about Jesus, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. Whose will was it? Yours? No, it was God's. But the call there is to trust. You see, the degree that we understand our sonship is if we, we experience this and live in light of this. You think it is about our performance? Proving and earning your sonship? That's not believing and that's not trust. J.I. Packer calls us out on this in the book Knowing God. He says this, If you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, then find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child. And having God as his father... If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his entire outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Do you live as a slave or do you live as a child? We have privileges and we have blessings. I've listened to just a few of them this morning. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. And if you believe this, if, the, if this is the trust of your life, it changes everything. One final story this morning. It's about a man named Bobby. Bobby. Bob Pedersen is actually his name. He tells the story of his childhood, and here's how it goes. He said when his mother was 14 years old, she had been abused and lived a terrible life, and so she fell into the arms of a soldier who impregnated her with Bobby at the age of 15 and then was shipped off, and she never saw him again. And when, she, when Bobby was born, she was living in a women's shelter because her parents were ashamed of her, and so they kicked her out of the house. They had disowned her. And Bobby's mom went on over the next couple of years to have five more children, all by different fathers. He said he was the oldest, and so he'd have to care for the kids when his mom would go out to the bars each night. Each night before she would go out, she would fry a pan of oatmeal. So in the morning, the kids would wake up, and they'd scrape the grease off the top of the oatmeal and eat cold oatmeal together. So his mom would bring home various men most nights. They would abuse her, and sometimes they would do awful and unspeakable things to the children as well. Eventually, the authorities found out about this, took the six kids, took them two by two, and placed them in foster homes. 
This is the 1940s and 1950s. You didn't want to be in a foster home today, and you didn't want to be a foster home then. The first foster home that they went to, Bobby and his younger sister stood or sat cowering in the corner as they watched their foster father, drunk as can be, beat to death their foster mother with a hammer. The next home they went to, the mom would make them eat out of dog dishes. Bobby said that abuse and the fear that was in his life is until he was at the age of 12, he would wet the bed. Between the ages of 6 to 12, he was in eight different homes, and he would never know his identity or his age. And one of the homes he was in when he was 12, when he wet the bed, his mom, his foster mom at that place, would, make him, would stick his face into the sheets. And the worst and most shameful thing she would do was wrap him in those sheets and make him stand outside school so the kids could mock him as they went in. Then one day in a potato farm, he went out back in eastern Washington and went out back behind the farm and falling face down in the dirt and in the mud, lifted up his face, caked with the dirt, cried out to God and said, God, I hate you. God, I hate you. He knew he never wanted to love anybody because it was too painful and he had never been loved by anybody. In the sixth grade, a teacher wrote on his report card, this is a boy who will never amount to anything. He felt as if God had abandoned him. There was no life for him here, but there was. See, in western Washington, there was an older fisherman, 45 years old, and he and his wife had never been able to have children, and they began to feel the desire to adopt a child. They went to the authorities and said, we want to, we want to adopt a child. They said, you're too old. We won't give you a baby. They said, we'll give you a teenager, but we warn you, the teenagers are broken in a way that you, they can never be fixed. They're psychologically damaged. But they said, we want to do it anyways. So the mom they brought her a book, 500 orphans in the book. And Bobby, in giving this account, the story of his life said, he doesn't know what God was doing. But by God's grace, on that day, she looked at that book. When she came to his picture, she pointed and she said, that's my boy. He says, he'll never forget it. Christmas of 1959 in eastern Washington, it was a snowy day when an amply built woman came rushing up the sidewalk and folded her arms around me and she said, I love you, Bobby. It's the first time he'd ever heard those words. And he remembers tears running down his face and she said, would you be my son? What do you think comes from a child who's experienced a childhood quite like that? After years of care and love and affection, his first night at home, he warned his parents, I still wet the bed. They said, that's okay. You can wet the bed a thousand times over and we'll still love you. That's the voice of God who says that. The only way you can change a life that's been broken that severely is through adoptive father parental love. This man grew up. He's a pastor in our denomination. He loves people well. His story loves people well because he's willing to share about the brokenness of his past and the fact that he he had fathers, a father and a mother who loved him and cared for him, but ultimately he had a God the Father who was behind all of that. And has redeemed him and restored him. Whatever garbage has come into your life, whatever brokenness that's in your past, we have a God who redeems because we have a God who adopts. Do you sing Jesus loves me as a kid? You have a vague idea of God's love for you. And I hope you go beyond the vague and experience it. And you know you're experiencing God's love for you and you hear the small voice whisper of the spirit inside of you says, you are my son. You are my daughter. That's the good news. We'll close there.
We say this as encouragement, though, as we go to prayer. My job is to shake ethos. Sometimes that means I call you out as a prophet, but we're not doing well as a church. There's other things, though. I simply bring the beauty of this church in front of you and say, look what God is doing and look what God has done. Listen, many of you are visitors. We have tons of visitors at this church right now. I've been here for two and a half years. You should want to be a part of this church. And here's why. Because a church that understands adoption adopts. This church gets it. And we have our flaws. We have our problems. But we get adoption. So you should want to be here. And to you kids, since half the church's kids are adopted, I think. Let me say this. I, I don't know the story that God has in your life and the story of redemption that he's weaving, but let me say this. You stay in church. It's good for you. It's the spiritual way in which you'll be changed. But it's also this. It's psychologically healthy for you to be here. There's nowhere else in the world in which the identity, you are surrounded by people here. Everybody here, you know what the norm is? We have all been adopted. It's the only place that is going to be psychologically healthy for you long term is to be with people who are not the non-biological children. We've all been grafted into Christ Jesus. With that, I'll close. Let me pray. Lord Jesus, I think of those this morning who um, my brothers and sisters who know intellectually that they're children of you, but God, they're still living like slaves. Oh, Spirit of the living God, I pray that you'd fall fresh on us. Do your work, Spirit, to convince, to assure, to do everything that is necessary to testify deep down in our souls that we are sons and daughters, that we are princes and princesses of the King of the earth. Oh, gracious God, change us from the inside out from that truth. We, that, that simple truth that we have full status as sons and daughters that would radically change who we are. That we would live with confidence and with joy and with assurance that we would have incredible prayer lives because we know we have every right to come before you with arms outstretched crying out, Abba, Father. That we live into our rights as sons and daughters. We ask in the initial, the first son, Jesus Christ. Amen.